you and I draw our last breath, we wake up, as it were, on the other side. We face God. What do you, what do you see on his face? What do you anticipate? Think, think about it for a minute. What do, what do you anticipate? A smile or a frown? Do you see kindness on his face? Or do you see anger? Now, I guess it's helpful for us to think about God um, in, in different ways. I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting that God, we talked about it last week, I'm not suggesting that we ought not ever think about God's anger flowing from his love as it, as it responds to that which hurts his creation, sin, you know. But for you, on that day, what do you see on his face? What do you see on his face? You see kindness, grace, mercy, or do you see anger, justice, condemnation? In, uh, in the book of Hebrews, the writer here is, is, is facing, dealing with some Christians who were struggling. They were starting to be persecuted. Uh, some things were starting to go poorly for them because of their faith. And they are, are, are starting to loosen their grip on faith starting to think about the good old days when they could live their faith in public and not worry about persecution, you know? And so they're, they're, they're maybe going back a little bit on their confession, on their profession. And the writer here in Hebrews is, is challenging them. and he, he uses this expression again and again. <coughs> he uses it once in our text here in Hebrews 4. Let us hold fast our confession. He used it back in chapter 2. Let's don't let it slip away from us. Don't don't loosen your grip on what really matters, you know. You've got this this profession of faith. Don't ever stop professing that. I want us to walk through these three verses together for the next little bit. Think about the throne of grace. Think about this great high priest that we have. A little bit of background here. You, you know, in, a, in an audience like this, we've got people all over the spectrum religiously. Uh, p- people who maybe, and, and we're glad, by the way, all of you are here regardless, but we've got maybe people who aren't very well-versed or comfortable with high priest kind of language. Maybe you don't even really know what a high priest is. You, you don't understand what it means in the biblical sense. <clears throat> and so let me talk about it for a minute just to make sure we're on the same page together as we read these three verses. So in the Old Testament, in the the first part of the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, first 39 books, when God related to his people in a different kind of way, God had called out his people Israel to be his own special possession, his own special people. And he created within the Israelite people a priesthood, you know, of a certain certain, um, uh, genealogy. They were descendants of a man named Levi, and they were called priests. And of those people, one of them, this is also genealogical, of those people, one of them would be called the high priest or sometimes called the chief priest. And he was a special man who served in special ways. In conjunction with this, God had established a a structure, a physical structure called, initially called the tabernacle. Later, when it was built in a permanent form, it would be called the temple. So in in the tabernacle, in the temple, there would be two rooms. There would be the holy place, 
And then there was this inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant in which was placed the two tablets on which God had given the Ten Commandments. This was, this was uh, on, and it rested on top of what's called in the Old Testament, the Mercy Seat. There were these angelic creatures fashioned out of gold that were called the seraphim. And so you've got the mercy seat. You've got these angelic creations, their wings kind of stretching heavenward above them. You've got the Ark of the Covenant there, and this is the mercy seat. Now, once a year, let me back up for a second. You don't go in the Holy of Holies. You don't go in there. This is not, it's not like open access. There's a curtain, very strong curtain, separating it from the outer room, and you didn't go into the Holy of Holies, except for once a year, and the high priest, the chief priest, this one man having, you read about this in Leviticus 16, this is called the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, still observed among many Jewish people today. And, and so on this, not in the same exact sense, but it's still observed uh, but on this day, the high priest, he would go through all this preparation. Leviticus 16 talks about this, all this preparation. Uh, animals were killed. He would take baths. He would dress up in a certain way. He would take some blood. It's a fascinating thing, you know. He would take some of this blood and he would go into the holy place. And then having prepared himself in a special way, he would take some of that blood and he would go inside the veil it's a big deal. Go in that room, that holy of holies, that special place. The reason you didn't go in there is because that represented where God lived. God dwelled there. So go inside the veil with the blood. And sprinkle some of that blood on the mercy seat. What this represented was God granting forgiveness to the sins of all the people. And then he would retreat from the Holy of Holies and he wouldn't go back in there for another year. Big deal. It was a really, really big deal. High priest, once a year, into the presence of God. And so, you see a lot of this, if you read the Old Testament, you know, you see a lot of separation. When God gave the law, remember he, he kind of circumscribed the mountain on which God would give the law of Moses. And, uh, and, and he said, you don't come anywhere close to the mountain. You know, only Moses. People got to stay away from the mountain. You, you go up and you touch the mountain. You let your animals touch the mountain. There's going to be death. You know, it's a big deal. Separation from God because we in our sinfulness can't come into the presence of a holy God. Once a year, high priest goes in there. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of the background here. It's helpful to understand a little bit about what he's talking about when he calls Jesus this high priest. And so in Hebrews 4, verse 14, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So in the first part of this description, he's passed through the heavens. <clears throat> the high priest would pass through the veil. He would pass through the veil, and he would bring the blood into the presence of God, offering it as, uh, as, as evidence of God's mercy, 
of God's forgiveness, you know. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took a little bit of his blood, so to speak. He died. He was resurrected on that Sunday. A few, a few weeks later, he ascended. And it is as if he took a little bit of his blood. And he went, not through the veil, but he went through, as it were, the veil into heaven. And he took that blood there and he presented it to the throne of God. Not the blood of a goat, not the blood of a ram, not the blood of a, of a lamb, not the blood of an ox. He took his own blood there, the perfect blood of Christ, and he brought it through the veil into the heavens to the presence of God, and he presented it there on your behalf, my behalf, passed through the heavens. Describing this Jesus... I'm going to come back to that idea in a minute. I'm not done with that, but let us hold fast our confession, he says at the end of verse 14. That, that verb there is a strong one. It, it, it means, well, it's used in a couple of pl- other places, several other places. It's used of, um, of Mary when Jesus was resurrected and she is reaching out for him, touching him, and Jesus says, don't, don't grab a hold of me, you know? Remember that? It's used of a, of a man who was disabled when he, he, he was clinging to Peter and James. Please heal me. Help me, you know. And he's grabbing onto them. Same verb here. Let us, oh, I love this, I love this imagery here. Let us grab hold of that perfection. It's like you're, you're drowning, perhaps. I mean, the image would be the same. You're, you're drowning in the water, and somebody throws you a life preserver, and you grab a hold of it. How, how tightly are you going to hold on to that life preserver? With every fiber of your being, you're going to hold on. This is that kind of language here. Let us grab hold of and never let go that confession. These folks were thinking about it. You and I may have thought about it, you know. Life gets hard. We get disappointed in God, what he's doing, what he's not doing. We get frustrated with the course of life. People are, are treating us badly at school or work. We're tired of this being called old-fashioned. We're tired of maybe, you know, other kids at school making it really difficult for us to live according to a Christian profession. And we think, man, maybe I'll just give up on that for a little while. This is hard. He says, grab hold of it and don't ever let go no matter what. Let us hold fast our profession, our confession. Because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So this description of Jesus is one where he is, as as Bob was saying in, in his communion thoughts, Jesus was a real living human being. Hurt like us. He got discouraged as we do. He struggled at times physically. He was a person. He, he's, you know, in the description of Jesus on the cross, he was sweating in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was bleeding like everybody else would have bled. He cried at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. He cried the night before his crucifixion. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He got tired and so he sat down at the well of Jacob in John 4. He had all these experiences. He sympathized with our weaknesses. He went into the, into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted representatively in every way as you and I are, are tempted. 
He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to struggle. He was someone who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not some God out there. He's not this, this, this God who's beyond our existence. Of, of all of our ways, all of the world's ways of accessing the metaphysical, the supernatural, Christianity is alone in this respect. And in others, but certainly in this respect, God... God, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. God condescended, came down, and took on flesh with all of its limitations and struggles and pains. <clears throat> we don't have a high priest who's out there. We have a high priest who's here with us, who has been here, you know. That's powerful powerful image. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so he went and met the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he came out unscathed. He was unwilling to give in to the temptations. You and I are not like that. You know, we went into the wilderness, so to speak, and we came out having succumbed to his temptations, but Jesus came out, and that's why he could go into the heavens and take his blood into the presence of God and offer it as a perfect sacrifice for us. He did it without sin. Look, look at the next section, though. Let us then. This is a pretty important verb. It's, a, this, uh, it's like an imperative. It carries an imperative kind of force with it. Let us, verse, verse 11, therefore strive. And then verse 16, our text, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence. Let's talk about confidence for a minute. I mentioned this at the beginning of our worship time today, uh, idea of confidence. I guess, I guess we struggle with this probably. Maybe we struggle because we know how inadequate we are. We know how sinfully at times we've lived. And so maybe we think, and maybe depending on our upbringing, what kind of family we had, what kind of mom or dad, or what kind of situation we were raised in, what kind of church we attended early on, the kind of, kind of thoughts of, of religion that we've developed over the years through all sorts, of, all sorts of reasons, you know. We may have an aversion to talking to God. We, we, may, we may feel ashamed we may be tempted to come to God with all sorts of excuses, of all sorts of, you know, caveats. It's pretty strong language that the writer here is using when he says we can draw near to him with, with confidence. Here's the thing. <clears throat> this confidence is not based on our merits. That's, this is how we get messed up. Because if you come to God and you're bringing him some Stuff, you know, like, well, Lord, you know, I, I, I do give quite a bit to the church. I go to church quite a few times. Um, I don't do some of the really bad stuff other people do. If you bring that to God and it's on that basis you approach him, you rightly come before him with some trepidation. Because in your heart of hearts, deep down within you, you know you're messed up. You know that. Some level, you know that. We know that. 
And so we, we don't come to him with all this stuff saying, Lord, look at this, look at this. You remember the story when the two guys went up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee went up there. This is how he did it. This is how he did it. I mean, this is, this, is, this is exactly what he was doing. He said, Lord, I, I thank you that I pretty much got everything together, you know. I pretty much got it all together. I'm doing all right. I, uh, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I'm especially not this lo- like, like this loser over here. This, uh, this tax collector. Pharisee, deep down, he knew his merits did not justify his approaching God in that way. Tax collector, though, tax collector came to God recognizing his, his sinfulness and he said, you know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the thing is, that tax collector, we learned something from him. We learned about humility and we learned about recognizing our weaknesses, but at the same time, I believe that tax collector doesn't represent fully how we approach God through Jesus. We come to him with humility. We come to him in penitence, but we also come to him in Christ. We come to him with boldness and frank confidence. Not because of what we've done, but because, there's a song like this, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And so we come to him on his merits. We come to him, we, we come to him with, without our own currency, but with the currency of Christ. We come to him not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Jesus. And based on what he's done, based on his perfection, his perfect record, his going into the wilderness and coming out unscathed, based on that track record, we come to God with our chin up. With humility, but with boldness. And we can talk to God. We can talk to God. We can go into the holy of holies. We can draw near to him. I'm thankful that to approach God, you don't have to find somebody else. You don't have to find a priest. You don't have to now, there's nothing wrong with our coming to each other and saying, Look, hey, would you pray for me? Would you, would you, let's pray together. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, you don't have to come to a priest or to someone else to access God. You don't have to go through a priest, a high priest on earth to go to God. You go to him through Christ. And so when Jesus, I think I mentioned this last week, when Jesus died on the cross, the earth quaked, the sun refused to shine, and because of that earthquake, the the veil of the temple was torn in two. Remember that? That was a symbolic moment when that veil tore into two pieces and it opened up symbolically access to God the Father through Jesus. He entered into the heaven to the heavenly realm, taking his blood there. And because of that, he's our pioneer. He's the one who goes before us. We walk boldly into the holy of holies without fear of death. We draw near the throne of grace. I mentioned at the beginning of this, what do you see on his face when you come into God's presence? When you pray to him tonight, this afternoon, And in your mind, you walk into the throne room of God and you start talking to him. What do you see on his face? I hope that if you are a Christian, you see on his face the most beautiful expression you can fathom. I hope that you see on his face warmth and kindness 
and love and mercy and grace. Whatever that looks like, I hope you see it. Because that's what's there. He's not looking at you with anger. He's not looking at you with impatience. He's not looking at you hypercritically trying to find some flaw. He can find it. They're there. It's not what he's looking for, though. He's looking at you through the lens of the perfect sacrifice of himself, of Christ. That's how he sees you if you're in Christ. And so you draw near with confidence to the throne, not of wrath, not of anger, not of judgment for a Christian, but you draw near to the throne of grace. And you receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so when you're struggling and hurting and you're discouraged and disappointed, and maybe doubting and worried and, and whatever it is, people are mistreating you, you're disappointed with the course of life and you fall down and you are ushered by the blood of Christ into the very presence of God, into the holy of holies, through the veil, into the heavenly realm of God and you fall down before him and with confidence you speak to him. What do you find? Whatever situation you're in, whatever it is, whatever you need to face this particular situation, a bad report from the doctor, a persecution that you're facing at school or at work, your doubts in your own heart, the disappointment with the course of life, whatever you need in that moment. What this means is, whatever you, you go into the throne room of God and He gives you whatever it is that you need to make it through whatever it is you're facing. I believe we're expected to draw a parallel between this and the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus went in there on that Thursday night before He died on Friday... And he was crying. Hebrews is the only one who tells us that, by the way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't tell us about the tears of Jesus. Hebrews does. Uh, he, the the writer, there writer here tells us, chapter 5, the writer tells us, no, it's back in chapter 2, I think. He tells us that Jesus was pouring out with strong crying and supplication. And he found what he needed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he poured out himself to God the Father, God sustained him and he gave him the strength and the courage he needed to face the events of the next day. And I believe that we're expected to draw a parallel. Jesus went to God on that night and he found grace and mercy. He found what he needed to face what lay ahead. And you and I find the same thing. You may be facing something right now. I'm a crowd of 300 folks. We've got people here facing a lot of different stuff. And maybe you're wondering, you're going to have the strength to meet this? You're going to have the strength to keep your faith in a difficult situation? You're going to have a strength, strength to make it through a, the, the trials that lie ahead? Go to the throne room of God and ask Him. And His grace will oversupply what you need. That's what this is talking about. And I think there's a, there's a sense in which this looks ahead to that final day. When you and I, in a very real way, are ushered into the throne room of God and we will stand before Him and we will hear Him say to us, Come in. I've been waiting on you. And we will find mercy and we will find grace that we cannot even fathom. I have prepared this kingdom for you. I've been working on this for a long time. Come in.
and enjoy the blessings of eternal life in my presence. You will find grace and mercy on that day. <clears throat> so here's the, here's the asterisk, though. We come to the end of this. This is to people who are in Christ. This is for us if we're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, all these blessings are not yours yet. They're yours in promise, but not in actuality. You can find them. And what a beautiful thing it is, the fact that God has preserved us to this moment, and he gives us all the opportunity. If you're not in Christ, you can be in him today. There's no reason why. There's no reason why you need to live outside of Christ. The blessings are eternal. It's, um, he, he appeals to you. Come to him in faith. Be baptized into him today. Accepting the gift of God's grace and mercy. You can be in Christ. And all these things we've been talking about today, the going into the holy of holies, into that throne room of God, it can be yours. It can be yours. He beckons, he pleads, he begs you to come. But he won't force you. If there's someone here who's not a Christian today but ready to become one, we invite you today on his behalf to accept the gift of salvation so that you may have all these blessings we've been talking about this morning. If you're a child of God, but you have obstinately and persistently rebelled against him, turned your back on his grace, why don't you come home to him today? It's a beautiful thing to know without a shadow of a doubt that we can find grace and mercy to help face whatever lies ahead. If you need to come, I hope you'll do that now. Let's stand and sing.